Volume Two, Chapter Nineteenth of the Antiquary. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Antiquary by Sir Walter Scott, Chapter Nineteenth. Life ebbs from such old age, unmarked and silent, as the slow neap tide leaves yon stranded galley. Late she rocked merrily at the least impulse that wind or wave could give, but now her keel is settling on the sand. Her mast has taken an angle with the sky, from which it shifts not. Each wave receding shakes her less and less, till, bedded on the strand, she shall remain useless as motionless. Old Play As the antiquary lifted the latch of the hut, he was surprised to hear the shrill, tremulous voice of Elspeth chanting forth an old ballad in a wild and doleful recitative. The herring loves the merry moonlight, the mackerel loves the wind, but the oyster loves the dredging sang, for they come of a gentle kind. A diligent collector of these legendary scraps of ancient poetry, his foot refused to cross the threshold when his ear was thus arrested, and his hand instinctively took pencil and memorandum book. From time to time the old woman spoke as if to the children. Ho, oh, hi, hinnies, whisht, whisht, and I'll begin a bonnier eye than that. Now hold your tongue, by the wife and Carly, and listen great and smile, and I will sing of Glenallan's earl that fought on the red harla. The chronics cried on Benachi, and on the dawn and I, and Highland and Laland may mournful be for the sorry field of harla. I didn't mind the nice first wheel, my mummer's failed, and there's uncou thoughts come o'er me. God keep us fry temptation. Here her voice sunk in indistinct muttering. It's a historical ballad, said old Buck eagerly, a genuine and undoubted fragment of minstrelsy. Percy would admire its simplicity. Ritson could not impugn its authenticity. Ay, but it's a sad thing, said Ogletree, to see human nature so far overtaken as to be skirling at old songs on the back of a lost like hers. Hush, hush, said the antiquary. She's gotten the thread of the story again. And as he spoke, she sung. They saddled a hundred milk-white steeds, they had bridled a hundred black, with a chaffin of steel on each horse's head, and a good knight upon his back. Chaffin, exclaimed the antiquary, equivalent perhaps to chevron. The word's worth a dollar. And down it went, in his red book. They hadn't ridden a mile, a mile, a mile but barely ten, when Donald came ranging down the bray with twenty thousand men. Their tartans they were waving wide, their glaives were glancing clear, their pre-rocks rung fry side to side, would deafen ye to hear. The great earl in his stirrups stood that highland host to see, now here a knight that stout and good may prove a jeopardy. What wouldst thou do, my squire so gay, that rides beside my rhine? Were you Glenallan's earl the day, and I were Rollinchine? To turn the rein were sin and shame, to fight were wondrous peril. What would you do now, Rollinchine, were you Glenallan's earl? You one ken, honeys, that this Rollinchine, for as poor and old as I sit in the chimney nook, was my forbear, and an awful man he was that day in the fight, 
but specially after Earl had fallen, for he blamed himself for the counsel he gave, to fight before Mar came up with Mearns and Aberdeen and Angus. Her voice rose and became more animated as she recited the warlike counsel of her ancestor. Her Glen Ellen's Earl this tide, and ye were a rolling chine. The spurs should be in my horse's side, and the bridle upon his mane. If they are twenty thousand blades, and we twice ten times ten, yet they are but their tartan plaids, and we are mail-clad men. My horse shall ride through ranks I rude, as through the moorland fern, then ne'er let the gentle Norman blood grow cowed for Highland kern. Do you hear that, nephew? said old Buck. You observe your Gaelic ancestors were not held in high repute formerly by the lowland warriors. I hear, said Hector, a silly old woman sing a silly old song. I am surprised, sir, that you, who will not listen to Ossian's songs of Selma, can be pleased with such trash. I vow I have not seen or heard a worse half-penny ballad. I don't believe you could match it in any peddler's pack in the country. I should be ashamed to think that the honour of the Highlands could be affected by such doggerel. And, tossing up his head, he snuffed the air indignantly. Apparently the old woman heard the sound of their voices, for ceasing her song she called out, "'Come in, sirs, come in. Good will never halted at the They entered, and found to their surprise Elspeth alone, sitting ghastly on the hearth, like the personification of old age in the hunter's song of the owl. Wrinkled, tattered, vile, dim-eyed, discolored, torpid. Reader's Note See Mrs. Grant on the Highland Superstitions, Volume 2, page 260, for this fine translation from the Gaelic. End Reader's Note Dry out, she said as they entered, but I knew a sit of link, somebody will be in. If you have business with my good daughter or my son, they'll be in by the way. I never speak on business myself. Bairns, guide them seats. The bairns are I gain out, I trow. Looking around her, I was croonin' to keep them quiet a wee while since, but they croppin' out some gate. Sit down, sirs. They'll be in by the way and she dismissed her spindle from her hand to twirl upon the floor, and soon seemed exclusively occupied in regulating its motion, as unconscious of the presence of the strangers as she appeared indifferent to their rank or business there. I wish, said old Buck, she would resume that canticle or legendary fragment. I always suspected there was a skirmish of cavalry before the main battle of the Harla. If your honour pleases, said Eddie, had you not better proceed to the business that brought us I here? Is engaged to get ye the sang ony time. I believe you are right, Eddie. Du manus, I submit. But how shall we manage? She sits there, the very image of dotage. Speak to her, Eddie. Try if you can make her recollect having sent you to Glenallan House. Eddie rose accordingly, and crossing the floor, placed himself in the same position which he had occupied during his former conversation with her. "'I'm fain to see your looking sae weird, comer. The mar that the black oxes tramped on you since I was aneath your roof-tree.' "'Hey,' said Esbeth, but rather from a general idea of misfortune 
than any exact recollection of what had happened. There has been distress among us of late. I wonder how younger folk bide it. I bide it ill. I kind of hear the wind whistle and the sea roar, but I think I see the cobble wumbled keel up and some of them struggling in the waves. Ay, sirs, sick weary dreams as folk hae between sleeping and waking, before they win to the lang sleep and the sound. I could always think whiles my son or Elstini, my oi, was dead and that I had seen the burial. Isn't that a queer dream for a daft old carline? What for should any of them die before me? It's out of the course of nature, ye ken. I think you'll make very little of this stupid old woman, said Hector, who, still nourished, perhaps, some feelings of the dislike, excited by the disparaging mention of his countrymen in her lay. I think you'll make but little of her, sir, and it's wasting our time to sit here and listen to her dotage. Hector, said the antiquary, indignantly, if you do not respect her misfortunes, respect at least her old age and gray hairs. This is the last stage of existence, so finely treated by the Latin poet, Omni, membrorum damnu maior dementia, quae nec nomina, servorum nec vultus agneset amici, cum queis proterita quinauit nocta, nec ilos, quos henuit, quos eduxit. That's Latin, said Elspeth, rousing herself as if she had attended to the lines, which the antiquary recited with great pomp of diction. That's Latin. And she cast a wild glance around her. Has there a priest found me out at last? You see, nephew, her comprehension is almost equal to your own of that fine passage. I hope you think, sir, that I knew it to be Latin as well as she did. Why, as to that, but stay, she's about to speak. I'd have no priest, none, said the beldam, with impotent vehemence. As I have lived, I will die. None shall say that I betrayed my mistress, though it were to save my soul. That bespoke a foul conscience, said the mendicant. I wish she would make a clean breast, and it were but for her sake. And he again assailed her. Here, good wife. I do your errand to the earl. To what earl? I ken na earl. I ken the countersigns. I wish to heaven I had never kenned her. For by that acquaintance, neighbor, there came. And she counted her withered fingers as she spoke. First pride, then malice, then revenge, then false witness. And murder trilled at the door-pin, if he could have been. And were not thy pleasant guests, think ye, to take up their quarters in I woman's heart? I trow there was wrath o' company. But come here, continued the beggar. It wasn't the Countess of Glenallan I meant, but her son, him that was Lord Geraldin. I mind it now, she said. I saw him know that lang sign, and we had a heavy speech together. Ay, sirs, the comely young lord is turned as old and frail as I am. It's muckle that sorrow and heartbreak, and crossing of true love, will do with young blood. But sooner his mother had look at to that herself. We were but to do her bidding, ye ken. 
I am sure there's naebody can blame me. He wasna my son, and she was my mistress. Ye ken how the rhyme says. I must forgotten how to sing, or else the tunes left my old head. He turned him right and round again, said, Score nigh at my mother. Light loves I may get money a ain, but many near another. Then he was but of the half blood ye ken, and hers was the right Glen Allen after I. Nay, nay, I might never mind doing and suffering for the Countess Jocelyn. Never will I mean for that. Then drawing her flax from the distaff, with the dogged air of one who is resolved to confess nothing, she resumed her interrupted occupation. I had heard, said the mendicant, taking his cue from what old Buck had told him of the family history. I had heard, Cummer, that some ill tongue sort of come between the earl, that's Lord Geraldin, and his young bride. Ill tongue, she said in hasty alarm, and what had she to fear for an ill tongue? She was good and fair enough, at least a body said so. But had she keeped her ain tongue I feather folk, she might have been living like a lady for I that's come and gone yet. But I heard say, good wife, continued Ochiltree, there was a clatter in the country that her husband and her were over sib when they married. What durst speak of that? said the old woman hastily. Why durst say they were married? What ken to that? Not the countess, not I. If they wedded in secret, they were severed in secret. They drank of the fountains of their iron deceit. No, wretched Beldam, exclaimed old Buck, who could keep silence no longer. They drank the poison that you and your wicked mistress prepared for them. Hi, hi, she replied. I thought it would come to this. It's but sitting silent when they examine me. There's nigh torture in our days, and if there is, let them run me. It's ill of the vassal's mouth that betrays the bread it eats. Speak to her, Eddie, said the antiquary. She knows your voice and answers to it most readily. We shall make nothing more out of her, said Ochiltree. When she has clinked herself down that way and folded her arms, she wouldn't speak a word, they say, for weeks together. And besides, to my thinking, her face is sire changed since we come in. However, I shall try her once more to satisfy her honour. So you cannot keep in mind, Comer, that your old mistress, the Countess Jocelyn, has been removed. Removed, she exclaimed, for that name never failed to produce its usual effect upon her. Then we mind a follow. I mind ride when she is in the saddle. Tell them to let Lord Geraldin ken we're on before them. Bring my hood and scarf. You wouldn't have had me gang in the carriage with my lady, and my hair in this fashion. She raised her shriveled arms, and seemed busy like a woman who puts on her cloak to go abroad, then dropped them slowly and stiffly, and the same idea of a journey still floating apparently through her head, she proceeded, in a hurried and interrupted manner, "'Call Miss Neville. What do you mean by Lady Geraldin? I said, Heavily Neville, not Lady Geraldin. There's nigh Lady Geraldin. Tell her that, and bid her change her wet gown, and no look like pale. Bairn, what should you do with a bairn? Maiden's high nine, I trow. Teresa, Teresa, my lady calls us. Bring a candle, 
the grand staircase is aye murk as a yule midnight. We are coming, my lady. With these words she sunk back on the settle, and from then sidelong to the floor. Eddie ran to support her, but hardly got her in his arms before he said, It's aye o'er. She's passed away, even with that last word. Impossible, said old Buck, hastily advancing, as did his nephew. But nothing was more certain. She had expired with the last hurried word that left her lips, and all that remained before them were the mortal relics of the creature who had so long struggled with an internal sense of concealed guilt, joined to all the distresses of age and poverty. "'God grant that she be going to a better place,' said Eddie, as he looked on the lifeless body. "'What ho! There was something lying hard and heavy at her heart. I have seen money of ain dee, both in the field of battle, and a fair stride death at hame. But I would rather see them aye o'er again, as sick a fearful flitting as hers.' "'We must call in the neighbours,' said old Buck, when he had somewhat recovered his horror and astonishment, and give warning of this additional calamity. I wish she could have been brought to a confession, and, though of far less consequence, I could have wished to transcribe that metrical fragment, but heaven's will must be done.' They left the hut accordingly, and gave the alarm in the hamlet, whose matrons instantly assembled to compose the limbs, and arranged the body of her, who might be considered as the mother of their settlement. Oldbuck promised his assistance for the funeral. "'Your Honour,' said Alison Breck, who was next in age to the deceased, "'so'd send down something to us for keeping up our hearts at the like wake. For I, Saunders Gin, poor man, was drunken out at the burial of Steenie, and will not get money to sit dry-lipped aside the corpse.' Elspeth was uncou clever in her young days, as I can mind right weel, but there was aye a word o' her, no being that chancy. And so to speak ill o' the dead. Marred by token, ain's comer neighbour, but there was queer things said about a lady and a bairn, or she left the Craigburn foot. And sighing good troth, it will be a poor like wake, and the Shroner sends us something to keep us crackin'. "'You shall have some whisky," answered old Buck, "'the rather that you have preserved the proper word "'for that ancient custom of watching the dead. "'You observe, Hector, this is genuine Teutonic, "'from the Gothic Lake Nam, a corpse. "'It is quite erroneously called Late Wake, "'though Brand favours that modern corruption and derivation.' "'I believe,' said Hector to himself, "'my uncle would give away Monkbarns to anyone,' who would come to ask it in genuine Teutonic. Not a drop of whisky would the old creatures have got, had their president asked it for the use of the late wake. While old Buck was giving some farther directions and promising assistance, a servant of Sir Arthur's came riding very hard along the sands, and stopped his horse when he saw the antiquary. There had something, he said, very particular happened at the castle. He could not, or would not explain what, and Miss Wardour had sent him off express to Monkbarns, to beg that Mr. Oldbuck would come to them without a moment's delay. "'I'm afraid,' said the antiquary, "'his course also is drawing to a close. What can I do?' "'Do, sir,' exclaimed Hector, with his characteristic impatience. 
get on the horse and turn his head homeward. You will be at Knockwinnock Castle in ten minutes.' "'He is quite a free-goer,' said the servant, dismounting to adjust the girths and stirrups. He only pulls a little if he feels a dead weight on him.' "'I should soon be a dead weight off him, my friend,' said the antiquary. "'What the devil, nephew, are you weary of me?' Or do you suppose me weary of my life that I should get on the back of such a Bucephalus as that? No, no, my friend, if I am to be at Knockwinnock to-day, it must be by walking quietly forward on my own feet, which I will do with as little delay as possible. Captain M'Intyre may ride that animal himself, if he pleases. I have little hope I could be of any use, uncle, but I cannot think of their distress without wishing to show sympathy, at least. "'So I will ride on before, and announce to them that you are coming. "'I'll trouble you for your spurs, my friend.' "'You will scarce need them, sir,' said the man, "'taking them off at the same time, "'and buckling them upon Captain M'Intyre's heels. "'He's very frank to the road.' "'Old Buck stood astonished at this last act of temerity. "'Are you mad, Hector?' he cried. "'Or have you forgotten what is said by Quintus Curtius?' with whom, as a soldier, you must needs be familiar. Nobilis, ecus umbra, quidem virga regitur, ignavus ni calcari, quidem excitari potest, which plainly shows that spurs are useless in every case, and, I may add, dangerous in most. But Hector, who cared little for the opinion of either Quintus Curtius or of the antiquary, upon such a topic, only answered with a heedless, "'Never fear, never fear, sir.' With that he gave his able horse the head, and, bending forward, struck his armed heels against the panting sides of his poor jade, up to the rowel-head, and, starting so, he seemed in running to devour the way, staying no longer question. "'There they go. Well matched,' said old Buck, looking after them as they started." a mad horse and a wild boy, the two most unruly creatures in Christendom, and all to get half an hour sooner to a place where nobody wants him, for I doubt Sir Arthur's griefs are beyond the cure of our light horsemen. It must be the villainy of Dostrasol, for whom Sir Arthur has done so much, for I cannot help observing that, with some natures, Tacitus's maxim holdeth good, beneficia eu usca, Laita suntum videntur exolvi possa ubi multum ada venera pro gratia odium reditur. From which a wise man might take a caution not to oblige any man beyond the degree in which he may expect to be requited, lest he should make his debtor a bankrupt in gratitude. Murmuring to himself such scraps of cynical philosophy, our antiquary paced the sands towards Knockwinnock, but it is necessary we should outstrip him for the purpose of explaining the reasons of his being so anxiously summoned thither. Reader's Note Note H. Battle of Harla The great Battle of Harla, here informally referred to, might be said to determine whether the Gaelic or the Saxon race should be predominant in Scotland. Donald, Lord of the Isles, who had at that period the power of an independent sovereign, laid claim to the earldom of Ross, during the regency of Robert, Duke of Albany. 
To enforce his supposed right, he ravaged the north with a large army of Highlanders and Islesmen. He was encountered at Harla, in the Garioch, by Alexander, Earl of Mar, at the head of the northern nobility and gentry of Saxon and Norman descent. The battle was bloody and indecisive, but the invader was obliged to retire in consequence of the loss he sustained, and afterwards was compelled to make submission to the regent, and renounce his pretensions to Ross, so that all the advantages of the field were gained by the Saxons. The Battle of Harlow was fought 24th July, 1411. Note I. Elsbeth's Death the concluding circumstance of Elspeth's death is taken from an incident said to have happened at the funeral of John, Duke of Roxburgh. All who were acquainted with that accomplished nobleman must remember that he was not more remarkable for creating and possessing a most curious and splendid library than for his acquaintance with the literary treasures it contained. In arranging his books, fetching and replacing the volumes which he wanted, and carrying on all the necessary intercourse which a man of letters holds with his library. It was the Duke's custom to employ not a secretary or librarian, but a livery servant called Archie, whom habit had made so perfectly acquainted with the library that he knew every book, as a shepherd does the individuals of his flock, by what is called headmark, and could bring his master whatever volume he wanted and afford all the mechanical aid the duke required in his literary researches. To secure the attendance of Archie, there was a bell hung in his room, which was used on no occasion except to call him individually to the duke's study. His grace died in St. James's Square, London, in the year 1804. The body was to be conveyed to Scotland, to lie in state at his mansion of Fleurs and to be removed from thence to the family burial place at Bowden. At this time Archie, who had been long attacked by a liver complaint, was in the very last stage of that disease. Yet he prepared himself to accompany the body of the master, whom he had so long and so faithfully waited upon. The medical persons assured him he could not survive the journey. It signified nothing, he said, whether he died in England or Scotland, he was resolved to assist in rendering the last honours to the kind master, from whom he had been inseparable for so many years, even if he should expire in the attempt. The poor invalid was permitted to attend the duke's body to Scotland, but when they reached Fleur, he was totally exhausted, and obliged to keep his bed, in a sort of stupor which announced speedy dissolution. On the morning of the day fixed for removing the dead body of the duke, to the place of burial. The private bell by which he was wont to summon his attendant to his study was rung violently. This might easily happen in the confusion of such a scene, although the people of the neighborhood prefer believing that the bell sounded of its own accord. Ring, however, it did, and Archie, roused by the well-known summons, rose up in his bed and faltered in broken accents. "'Yes, my lord duke, yes. I will wait on your grace instantly.' And with these words on his lips, he is said to have fallen back and expired. End Reader's Note End Chapter 19th